Blog Talk Radio. Angeles, California. Welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your host, Shaw McCain. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Shaw McCain, and I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show. My show is created to provide an open-minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstance. Please follow the Paranormal and Sacred on Facebook for upcoming events and special speakers from around the world. We're translated into many different languages for listeners outside of our country. The call-in number tonight is 619-924-9744, and the Paranormal Sacred airs every Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And also, we have Sacred Sundays every Sunday morning, 11 a.m., for those of you who know that. Anyway, during the show, I can take questions in chat, or you can call in with your question and speak with our special guest tonight. Any buzz killers, you know what's going to happen to you. Your phone will be kicked out, you will be kicked out, and I have a copy of your number, and I'll call you back and bug you. So please don't bug me. Be polite, play nice, and make this a comfortable place to visit. Anyway, I have a few announcements. Uh, let's see here. I must tell you about Marilyn Salas's creation, Love Blessing. She got me, a, gave me a beautiful little kit, and it smells like soft incense, and it's comforting, and it's blessed, and I guess it's blessed with the crystal uh, the crystals and the oils and everything else. Anyway, it smells so good, calming and relaxing. And to order yours, contact Marilyn Salas at www.lovesblessing.com. And i also like to tell you something a little bit about Leslie Sloan. Uh, she has a note here, Happy Friday, everybody. And she has another prize to tell everybody about. She's taking 15% off all readings, and this offer expires November 15th. So if you've been thinking about doing a 1530 30 or 60 minute reading, this is time to give yourself a, a little gift. Anyway, her phone number is 818-348-4646, or you can go to www.oraclehealingcards.com. And also, I want to let our near zero people know that our next zero meeting is actually going to be Sunday in Huntington Beach at the secret location, and we will be there from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. And uh, you know that one, you know, anyway, I can't tell you. So all remote viewers can also tell people, but I can't tell you. Anyway, I'm going to be there. And so I want to let you know that Yvonne Smith's new book, Coronado Haunting, is now available on Amazon and Create Space. And also, if you're interested or need a licensed hypnotherapist to do regression therapy, get help for being an abductee or anything else, she uh, does uh, personal hypnotherapy counseling up in... um, I think of Verdugo Hills and also in Huntington Beach. So uh, you can get a hold of her at www.cerointernational.com. And I'm going to tell you just a couple little minutes about my cousins. I actually have actually has Texas cousins. And these cousins do ghost tours, and they're doing a big shindig uh, for Halloween. And they want you to go and uh, sign up. Anyway, 
They have the tour days and times and everything else available for you. I think adults are only uh, $20, and then they do these uh, 1 a.m. tours, about 30 bucks, and they have special rates for Halloween. Anyway, so get a hold of Chris Simpson at 409, that's my cousin's son, 771-8901, or his wife Tracy at 713-562-0429, and you can email at texasghosttours at yahoo.com or go to the website www.texas-ghost-tours.com anyway i just want to let you know our next week our special guest is edwin becker author of two haunting one and two and he will be our uh guest and uh, talk about his books and everything else and also that's going to be our three-year anniversary can you believe that three years i've been on this anyway uh, I will also be giving away copies of Edwin's books. So I'm not sure what I would make people do to get these copies, but anyway, you're welcome to puck. tune in next week. Anyway, we also want to tell you that the Paranormal Sacred Book Club has now 477 members, and I go through and then uh, three zillion people want to join, but I think they're just trying to uh, put a bunch of commercials on there. So I just keep it down to book lovers only, and if you have a paranormal book or anything along those lines, and want to post it to the Paranormal Sacred Book Club, look for us on Facebook, and I will add you in. Anyway, we, we deal with anything, even the sacred, you know, ghosts and angels and life after death, all that. So you're welcome to join. Now, one last thing. There's a group called CATIPA, Citizens Against Toxic Chemicals, and I have some friends that are very interested in this, as they have found that, uh, there's chemicals and everything from your toothpaste to the motor oil and, and medicines and everything else. So they're actually um, against this. And my friend is sure this is why he got Parkinson's, that he's exposed to a bunch of toxins. So anyway, go to www.parkinsonsinternational.org and check it out because he's dealing with uh, scientists and doctors that are working with 22nd century technology to get a cure. Anyway, go over there, donate to them, and uh, we really appreciate Now, what we've been waiting for this week, our guests are the awesome Pete Elmore and Barbara Elmore. They're ufologists, authors, and they're on the serial board of directors. And I'm going to introduce you and do the bio, and I'm going to get them on right now. They're waiting. Uh, Pete Elmore was born in Kingston, North Carolina in 1962. He graduated from North Carolina State University in 85 with a degree in political science. Pete meant made ends meet in college by writing the school newspaper, The Technician, and he has written several screenplays and three books, including The Flaming Dragon. Let's see. I think part of the books are 11 Easy Ways to Determine If You Live in a Haunted House, Reflections of Alien Abductor Investigator, and also Pete was a former MUFON State Section Director for L.A. and has investigated over 450 UFO and abduction reports. We want to hear all about that. And he currently serves on the Board of Advisors for Serial, which is Close Encounters Research Organization. And Barbara Elmer was born in Jacksonville, North Carolina in 64. Man, she's a baby. How can you people be so young? Anyway, she attended North Carolina State University where she majored in English. And Barbara has always been interested in the paranormal and has had many experiences of her own. And she's co-authored The Flaming Dragon, which we're going to talk about tonight, which is being developed into a TV series at the Fleur de Lis Studios. And Barbara is currently writing a book about her childhood entitled Tomboy Tales. And she also serves on the Board of Advisors for Ciro. And Pete and Barbara met in North Carolina State University in 82 and then 
It was as if they've known each other all their lives, and they really are a wonderful couple. And they became best friends quickly, and they were married in 86. Three wonderful kids, three boys, Ryan, Jason, and Sean. Shout out to them. And they also they live in Santa Clarita, California. So I, without further ado, I'm going to get them on after talking all that those few minutes. Welcome, Pete and Barbara. Thank you for having us, Charlene. Yes, thank you I'm very so, much. You're, you're very welcome. I'm so excited to have you on. As uh, we know each other as friends and at Ciro, um, I've been a member at Ciro since uh, before uh, Yvonne even got her full license over there. So it's been uh, 100 years. I don't know. What is it, 23, 25 years? I don't know what it is. Long time. So anyway, uh, why don't you guys uh, tell us about yourselves Um I did your bios. How did you get interested in this whole thing? What happened? Well, it's kind of like Yvonne says, the universe kind of puts you into the UFO subject. It's not something you choose to do. Uh, The way I started with all of this with MUFON, I had come up with an idea for a TV show based on alien abductions. And I saw Dr. Roger Lear was speaking at MUFON LA at that time. And I went there, and he needed help bringing his stuff in. So I I talked to him before the meeting, and I just thought it was going to be an interesting time. I didn't really know what to think about it. And he pretty much scared the hell out of me with everything he said and all of his um, the evidence he had with the implants. And I talked to him afterwards, and I realized, okay, this is something real that I really need to investigate. Then I joined MUFON. And before long, they had asked me to be an investigator, so I signed up and passed the test and was certified as a field investigator. And I just really moved up the ranks very quickly until the point they made me state section director of Los Angeles, and Barbara and I were putting on public meetings, bringing in guests from all over the country to speak. And I just thought I needed to really tell about these interesting cases that I investigated, the sightings I investigated, and I just thought it's something that the world needs to know about, so that's why we wrote the book. Very interesting. And uh, is it out now? What's 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 where is it? Where can we find your book? The book is on Amazon. It's called Reflections of an Alien Abduction Investigator, and it's basically me talking about different cases and some of the conclusions I came to. Uh, there are no real names in it. That's something else we can talk about later. Is the stigma that's attached to any person that says they're an alien abductee, automatically society thinks they're crazy. And they could lose their jobs, they could lose loved ones over it. Um, I know of several cases where either a husband or wife feels they were abducted and the spouse left them because they just couldn't deal with it and thought they were crazy. So really that's, I really feel for the people going through this. Yeah, it's a serious problem, especially before you get any help. Uh, like that's what Cyril is about, is for people to go uh, for help if they've been uh, abducted or feel that they're having – sometimes these night terrors involve – they're just not night terrors. Or people are being abducted. Well, exactly. And talking about the night terrors, if you ask a scientist about alien abduction, he's going to tell you it's nothing more than sleep paralysis. But I can tell you, with the cases I've investigated, it's a whole lot more than sleep paralysis because there's been physical signs. 
I've had people come up to me and show me claw marks on them. I have seen what they call the scoop marks, which looks like someone took a hole punch and went into their skin with it. I saw Dr. Lear taking out implants. I have seen... You have have seen... uh, You've been there when Dr. Lear was taking out the implants? I wasn't there, but I saw film of it. Oh, that's right. That's exactly. And and he told me about it. Uh, Yeah, because he's, you know, God rest his soul, he's passed now, and we lost uh, somebody that... You know, I was very dependent on. I know a lot of us uh, miss him very much because there's really nobody quite like him. He was a wonderful man. Yeah. He really was. And he was very funny. He he was always he was trying to make funny. And he always tried to make my events, even though he was in very poor health. He was always trying to show his support, and he would make it out to my public meetings. And he was just very encouraging. He's really the one that got me into this, and really helped me a lot and we all really miss Roger a lot. Yes, sure do. So he had some very weird uh just to go on the implant subject for a second. He had some very weird implants where uh he was trying to take out an implant and it withdrew back into the under the skin. Like it it was running from him or something. It's really yeah, that scary happened, me to say really. That that has happened uh with Roger Lear had that and also I believe it was either um Whitley Strieber, or um, there was another one that there was a famous case about that where they tried to get an implant and it actually ran from them, basically. One of the ones I thought was interesting, and I saw the film on with Dr. Lear, was they took one out of this guy and they were putting it, you know, they would always get a vial of blood to store it in because they wanted it in the same type of chemical setting it was in in the body. Well, he pulled this one out, and it broke into seven pieces. And he took each piece out and put it in the vial. When all seven pieces were in the vial, they reassembled. Now, that oh, wow. is not, you know, that's not a normal thing coming out of somebody. That's not a splinter. There was something very unusual about that, and I saw it happen. So it's that that really merits further study. I've never heard of that one. That's incredible. Because uh, I do know that uh, the implants are there. The abductees know they're there. And it's weird because you, without, uh, like, I can't go through metal detectors and stuff like that. So I, they are detected in me. But usually you don't know they're there, but it seems like the abductees know they're there. They'll say, okay, I have one right here, right here, right here. It's like you can point them out. Well, that is true. Um, one abductee that I've talked to extensively has told me that, uh, to begin with, when he was small, he had a sort of a, a bump on his forehead that was noticeable. And he's been abducted since he was about four years old. Well, finally, when he became a teenager and then into college, he asked if he could remember his experiences and he could remember them then. And they actually told him that place on his forehead was an implant. And he said, well, I want you to get it out. So he didn't see him for a while, but he felt something on the back of his neck after he had started having more experiences, and he actually had an implant on the back of his neck. He went to a nurse because that area was hurting, and when she used a scalpel to try to cut it and lance what she thought was a boil on the back of his neck, Green liquid came out, and the implant was a stony implant 
kind of shot out too with the liquid. And the implant basically evaporated in front of their eyes. It was solid, and then it just disappeared as air hit it. Wow. This is so, this is a, a really uh, stunning to hear, really, because uh, these things act so strange, and they're made out of uh, organics, so they wouldn't show up anywhere. And they also seem to be made out of glass, and some people have metals with little wires. I, I've seen the pictures of a lot of these things, but uh, it's it's uh, very strange because we know personally a lot of these people that have implants. Right. I know with um, Dr. Lear, he would tell me a lot of times they would be encapsulated in an organic material that actually resembled a nerve cell. But you cut it open, and when they had it analyzed, and he used about five different laboratories, to have so you're breaking up a little bit. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, okay. Go ahead. Okay. He used different laboratories and did not tell them what he was sending them. He just asked for a composition of them. And of the 17 implants he sent out, I believe all of them basically came back that they were made up of what we would call meteor rock here on Earth. And when they looked at the isotopes in it, the radioisotopes they will tell you what part of space basically they came from, and they came from a star system that had to be hundreds of light years from here. It did not originate on Earth, and on Earth these would be very rare minerals. And the other part of it that was interesting, he started towards the end testing for radio frequency waves, RF waves, and a lot of times they would emit these RF waves in the same frequency band that NASA uses for deep space communication with probes. So that was all very interesting, and it's something that really we need to pick up on and continue his research in. We really do. It's a concern of mine, and we have to keep going. And, you know, I really hope that uh, there is a couple of doctors out there that will step forward. But a lot of this, you know, Dr. Lear was uh, very brave because a lot of this would end somebody's career and it, uh, he's been doing it a long time, very definite, always telling the truth. Uh, just a, incredible. We need somebody like him. So if you're out there and you're a doctor and you're the real deal, come help. Help us. So, uh, Barbara, how did yes, you get into this? Well, um, as far as the overall um, interesting phenomena in life, you know, like the, um, you know, things moving in the house and things like that. I've always had those kind of things happen. Um, so pretty much, you know, when, when Pete and I have always had an interest in paranormal stuff, uh, we've had an interest in space, uh, study of astronomy, you know, astrology, um, you know, anything alien, you know, that would come up, we would, we would be interested in television shows, sci-fi, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who have interest in it, you know, sometimes, you know, it just gravitates on towards, you know, just investigating and doing more and more research. Yeah, and so, uh, you were saying here uh, that it seems like people that are abductees or have uh, this kind of thing that they're all gravitating towards each other that we kind of are pulled to each other and also to places. Yes, that's true, because, 
you know, it just seems to be that way. We seem to find each other. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Well, Deb, so you're right. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, like Yvonne has told us there at Zero, you can try to leave the UFO field, but it will always come back and find you, it seems like, and you get pulled back into it. It's it's like Yvonne's telling me, she, you know, sometimes you're destined to do this, and there's no way you're going to get out of it. And I really rely on her for a lot of advice because she's one of the best in the field now. Yeah, she really is, and she's kept at it for many, many years. And she she had some losses because of this field too, and then she's had many gains too. So it's kind of a give and take thing. I see people leaving this field all the time. And I go, where are you going? You're gonna, you know, they're gonna come get you. So it's my <laughs> you know, because right, I never, I I sometimes try to fade out. You know what I mean? I was doing that up until like three years ago. I tried to like stay away. You know what I mean? But now it's just too late. I came out of the closet about three years ago. So, uh, well, that's so now I'm out. Uh, yep, exactly. Well, that's one of the good things, Charlene, is uh, Pete and I have always had, you know, an interest in this together. Um, you know, and we we haven't backed away. You know, when one is interested in something, we just investigate it together and and um you know it's a type of understanding you know yeah one thing you know, we, that's the best uh, especially like at the zero meetings or they're very happy to see a couple that's doing this together because it causes so much stress in a marriage if you have a spouse that's interested in say psychic stuff and ghosts or par- any paranormal things aliens and the other spouse isn't supportive, it causes a lot of strain on the marriage. Since we do this together, you know, it just probably strengthens our relationship. And I guess we're in a minority in that, in this field, from what we've been told. Yeah, sadly enough. Yeah, I go for the paranormal field, too, that it just seems like there's forces that pull people apart. And uh, it may have played a part in my relationship, but I have to talk to him if I ever talk to him again because I've been married oh, many years 27 years and we're not divorced yet but we've been separated for the last five and uh, I think that's that was the last thing we talked about was he said uh, you're one of, he was watching the, the history channel and he was watching about the women that are plane spotters in World War II they could spot planes before they came on the radar and all that and imagine being married to somebody over 20 years, and this is what they're telling you. Then he said, you're one of those, aren't you? And I looked at him, I went, I've been telling you this over 20 years, 25 years. Like, what are you saying? And he looked at me really weird. You know what I mean? And we were reconciling after another breakup we had, and we, because we'd just been rocky the last few years. And uh, the next day... Uh, he said uh, he wasn't coming over for dinner. I went, what? You know, like, what are you doing? And he just said he wasn't coming over. And I went, I don't think I'm going to talk to you anymore. And you know, that was the last time we ever spoke as a couple together. Oh, Isn't that weird? Sad. It is. It's sad. You know, the story isn't over yet, but I'm telling you, I started thinking about this whole thing. That was the last thing he asked me about. And does that have anything? Because a lot of us are gifted and we have either remote viewing qualities or or things like that. Do you think that's why the aliens want certain people is because of that? 
Well, they definitely seem to be after certain ones. And like we have seen, about 75 to 80% of abductees tend to have RH negative blood. I don't know exactly what that connection is, but only 15% of the population has it, while 75 to 80% of the abductees have it. It would probably be interesting to do a study on people who see ghosts and that sort of paranormal stuff and see if they're also of the RH negative type. But going back to the relationship, too, um, one abductee, and this goes back really into how I got into this, is a, a personal friend of mine, and I know this person would not lie to me, but their spouse, the first one, they've been married three times, the first spouse basically left them because they thought the person was crazy and they couldn't put up with it anymore. And I believe it's the second one, actually saw some of the um, abduction experience, and that scared them so bad they wouldn't be a part of it. So it's kind of, you know, darned if you do, darned if you don't type situation. You either think the person's crazy or I'm not dealing with this. Right. So it's, it's I've heard that time and time again. It's just like right now since I released the book, I've been contacted a lot on Facebook and on the Internet, and um, there's even a lady that I just talked to in Finland who's going through a lot of things. And these people just want someone to listen to them, basically. Yeah, because you get disorientated because you're being, first of all, you're being abducted, then you're being uh, rebuffed by your mate, and you really can't find a place in the world. That's why it's so important that you are writing books about these experiences that you do, you guys stick together because you're an example to the rest of us. And, uh, you're, you're the way your parenting style is so awesome because the kids come and they have, they're not even, uh, affected. They just go about their business and they join the fun. And, uh, cause we do a lot of get together and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, cause I'm remembering them dressed up in a, a little alien costume. I don't know which kid that was because your kids are growing like like string beans. They're growing so tall. But um, yeah, we were we were at that, that Tracy was... Torme thing. That was kind of an amazing show. If you want to tell people about Tracy Torme, well, Tracy Torme, um, it's really funny you talk about synchronicity out here. Um, when we were first married, and I, I was always into Star Trek, I saw Tracy Torme's name pop up there on the screen as a writer. And I started recognizing that. I said, wow, he must be related to Mel Torme, and that was his father. And then, yeah, and then Sliders came on, which was a show that Tracy Torme had created. And I told Barbara, look, this is the guy off of Star Trek. And it just so happens he also um, produced Fire in the Sky, which was Travis Walton's experience. Right. And I... um, he was friends with um, Georgie, who was our state director for MUFON, and she called him up for me. And we've actually become friends with Tracy since then, and him and his wife. His wife's just a darling. Yeah, Robin. And, we, and Robin, we love both of them. And he agreed to come speak. And he talked about how Gene Roddenberry was his mentor. And he went in there one time and told Gene, you know, about UFOs and alien abductions. And Gene said, I'm going to throw you out of the office if you talk about that anymore. I don't want to hear about that nonsense. I don't believe there's life beyond Earth. What? And Tracy, yeah, Tracy was completely shocked. 
She went, but you came up with Star Trek. He said, what do you mean? <laughs> said, don't talk about that mess with me. And, you know, Tracy tells that story every time he speaks. But he, he did a, a, a phenomenal job in Hollywood, and he's working on a project right now dealing with the UFO subject. And hopefully he'll have that completed in the next six months. Yeah, he's a very interesting, brilliant person. I was there and got to meet him, too, and uh, just very uh, awesome. And I'm really so glad that you guys are are – in, in with Ciro and on the and on the board of directors, really, because it, we're fortunate to have you aboard. That's the way I feel. That you're really uh, incredible people, you know. So mm-hmm. now, Barbara, now um, I wanted to ask you about your your book about your childhood. Um, so you're re- currently writing tomboy tales, and. Uh, you're a tomboy up in uh, North Carolina, and so, you know, eventually I'm going to move there when I retire. Did you know that? Yeah, I think you had mentioned something about that. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't believe the amount of people have that have an interest to um, go to that area, Charlene. So it's I very... wonder what's up with that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but, you know, I don't know it's either. place too, you know, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. So tell us about uh, your childhood in North Carolina a little bit. Well, the interesting part about my uh, life growing up is I was born in Jacksonville, North Carolina, as you said, and that's uh, one of the largest military bases on the East Coast is Camp Lejeune, which is right there. Um, and and I pretty much grew I grew up on a farm. Uh, but I also had connections to, you know, people and um, from all over the world, basically, that would come and, and they would reside there while they were in the military. Um, but I, I kind of straddled the two so I could see the rural life um, and enjoyed it very much. And most kids are not even, you know, don't even have a place of reference you know, for growing up around a lot of animals and, you know, uh, having a garden and, you know, doing all those things that I did, running through the woods, um, climbing trees, you know, swinging from branches, you know, all those things that, you know, I took for granted. Um, you know, going to the ocean and and just connecting with the earth. And I think that's important for me to, one, catalog it, you know, for my kids. Um, And maybe others will have an interest in hearing about that kind of life. That's that's a beautiful life. Yeah, because I lived upstate New York, and I lived along the Hudson, and I had the same kind of life, really. The woods meant so much to me. I think the escape to the woods saved me during my childhood, but get away from the house. Well, I think so, too. I think, uh, you know, that seems to be another um, characteristic, you could say, is the connection, you know, to the earth. Um, yes. Yeah, and, you know, the interest in nature, um, you know, is it, something that a lot of people are missing right now. Exactly, because they don't have any idea. I, I really... Uh crave that contact with nature i always have an animal living with me a dog usually mm-hmm. you know but 
but I, I really do want to look out and see a tree someday. someday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so uh, so when was your first sighting, Pete? My first sighting, and really my only significant sighting, was in 1979, and it was during the summer. I was uh, going into my senior year of high school, and a friend of mine and I were um, going between LaGrange and Kinston, North Carolina, which is about, it's only about eight miles between it. We were from LaGrange and the rural area around it, and we went to Kinston to play tennis or you know, sometimes play basketball, different things. And we were coming back home one night, probably about 8 o'clock, and it was a four-lane highway, Highway US-70. And even though it's a four-lane highway, you've got basically cornfields or tobacco fields on each side of it. There's, you know, very few houses and things. And as we were going along, I looked out the car window, and I saw this really bright white And I looked at it, and I told my friend, I said, look, what's that? I said, is it a helicopter? And anything where the light was coming from, it was just a cone of light coming down. So I turned on a side road, drove right up there within a few hundred feet of it, rolled the windows down, we didn't hear a thing, started to get out of the car, actually got out of it, and as I did, it shot up several hundred feet without making a sound. Then on a 90-degree angle, took off very, very fast towards the west and was out of sight within about two seconds. And that was kind of the last I remember of it, except my friend. Um, it seemed to upset them a lot more than it upset me because I was just like, what is it? But years later, when I put a thing on Facebook asking if any of my friends, either in North Carolina or out here, had any abductions happen, this person called me up and said, you remember that UFO we saw together? I said, yeah. They said, well, I see those all the time. You're The only time I've ever seen one with anyone else was the time you were with me. But we had missing time with it because my friend remembers it differently than I do. He doesn't remember any of the stopping. or remembers the stopping but not the getting out of the car and everything. So we actually had about an hour of missing time in it. Anything else? I, ha I haven't seen anything else, even when Barbara has her paranormal experiences. I don't see the ghost. I don't see that. So I go into everything as a skeptic, but I have an open mind. You know, I believe my friend when they tell me that they've had these experiences happen to them. And I believe my wife when she says she sees a ghost hanging over to bed. <laughs> or right. sees a little standing at the foot of it. I, I, you know. <laughs> he just goes with it. I just <laughs> you're lucky barbara because <laughs> in your well in your book you you talk about this story and this scene in reflections of an alien abduction investigator and uh you talk about that and the the area is actually very near the seymour johnson air force base in goldsboro uh is that the area you were talking about and the story you're talking about now um that is close to seymour johnson seymour johnson yes. is in goldsboro it would have been about yes. 15 miles away from us. Uh, the interesting part is the story, the UFO story I heard growing up also relates to Seymour Johnson. And 
there were people I would hear talking about this certain sighting, which was not made public because, you know, back then people just wouldn't speak of these things. But I would hear it in the little gatherings I'd go to, you know, like for Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever. <laughs> and they talked about this event that happened back around 1960 or 1961. Back then, you still didn't have a lot of TVs. People weren't inside as much. Uh, you know, there was no such thing as the Internet. You didn't have cable TV for certain. So the people would be outside, the families, especially in the summer, you know, because you didn't have as many air conditioning units things even. And they would be outside looking up at the stars or talking around a little fire. And a couple of the boys in that family had taken their dates down to the river, which is what you did. You know, I guess that was like lover's lane at that point or something. They would go down to the river and they built a little campfire. And that was about a mile away from the house. Well, all of a sudden, this one night, the sky lit up, and they heard this craft go over it. They didn't hear noise from the craft. They just heard, like, the wind whistling through it. It went over at treetop level, and it lit up like it was daytime. And all of the people <clears throat> that were there still talk about it. I mean, there were at least a good eight to ten people. Well, that wasn't the end of it. It went off towards the river to where the boys and the girls were. And soon after it went over, jets from Seymour Johnson just come out with their turbo blasting just as fast as they could with their, you know, full fire coming out of them, like they were looking for something, like they were chasing something. Well, down at the river, the boy, the two boys and the two girls, they saw this thing come over too, and it lit up like it was daytime, and it scared the girls. The boys tried to act brave, but I'm sure it scared the heck out of them too. And they put their fire out. Well, everything got dark. The jets flew over them. It got quiet. And then from down around the bend in the river, they saw a light coming. Well, they kind of got behind some bushes, and they were watching to see what could this be coming down the river because it was already they were already kind of scared. Well, it came right down there by them. It was this really bright light, and it looked sort of like your classic flying saucer type thing, although you, it was really dark and you could just see it really kind of lit up. It got to right where they were at at the river, and it stopped. And, of course, that really scared the kids. Well, then they heard the jets coming back over, and whatever the object was over the river turned the lights off when the jets went over. After they had passed, they saw two more lights coming from down the river, and they came up to where they were at also, and then the third one lit back up again. So you had three of these objects. They continued on down the river, and, of course, the two couples they, uh, as they put it, they hightailed it out of there and ran all the way back to the house, and they told them at the house what they had seen. Well, for the next 20 minutes or so, you could hear jets from Seymour Johnson all over the area. They were just flying all over like they were searching for something at low altitudes. And that was kind of the last um, that they, you know, after the jets left, they didn't see any more UFOs. And you didn't really have any more reports like that. But I thought that was one of the more unique cases I've ever heard of. Yeah, because this was in daylight or? This was at night. Night, okay. Yeah, because it was dark, but the light from these UFOs. It was bright. Went, That's right, yeah. It was so bright it made it look like daylight. And you're talking about people sitting around outside, you know. And they knew what they were looking at. They could tell the difference. You know, they they would point out satellites even when satellites were up there. They they knew the fighter jets, 
from well, you're right between uh, in North Carolina there between Seymour Johnson, which was at the time a SAC base and was the uh, strategic air command headquarters for the United States at that time. You had Camp Lejeune, you have Cherry Point, you have Fort Bragg, which is besides um, the base out here is one of the largest bases in the world, basically. So we know back there what type of military aircraft they are. And the military had an interest in whatever this object was flying over. So that kind of always had my interest in the subject just because I heard about that from a childhood standpoint. Yes, and uh, I think there's a lot of – I know Chris Bledsoe's out there in North Carolina and a lot of other friends in – Chris Putnam, and uh, you guys are from there, and uh, I'm going there. Weather um, <laughs> was there. Uh, the, Who was? The children, he is uh, was from around that area, too. Sorry. I didn't know that. Yeah. And Chris Putnam's a great guy. Yeah, um, yeah he's, he's great. He's going to be on, too, in a couple weeks, in November, actually. Well, tell Fan- him we said hi. Fantastic. <laughs> I will. I will. Yeah, he's going to be November 13th. So, uh, anyway, what are your favorite cases? And I was wondering, because you brought up uh, Betty and Barney Hill, and uh, we we also, I know we all know Kathleen Martin, and uh, it's just a very interesting case. I remember the movie when it came out about it, how uh, it was in black and white, and just how mysterious and sordid it was. I don't know if you guys felt that way about that movie, but I did. It was just a very creepy movie. Yeah, and actually they're making a new movie right now about the Betty and Barty Hill case. But that is far from being the first case. Uh, That's the first one that made the popular culture in America. Uh, In Brazil there was a case in 1957. And a farmer and his, basically him and his brother kept seeing UFOs almost every night for a week. And then he went out in the field one night and the UFO came down to him. He was actually driving on his tractor doing farm work at night by the lights from his tractor. And it stopped right in front of him. Of course, his is a very unusual case, but I find it more fascinating almost than the Betty and Barney Hill one. He had almost like this adolescent schoolboy type sexual fantasy happen with it. And he talks about the special gel they put on him and how he had these beautiful, what we would call Pleiadian type female aliens come make love to him. That happened in 1957. But if you look back even before then, the earliest case that I have seen documented comes from 1528 in China. And basically, you have this one man who was a stonemason in his in the province there in China, and he was taken away on this ship. And he only remembers being gone for a short time, and he remembers he was having chest pains. Well, when he came back and they found him back outside his house again, he had this long scar all the way down his chest, which we would today, that's what you would get from a heart surgery, and his heart seemed to be completely fixed. Well, back in the 16th century, China didn't have open-heart surgery. And his family told him he had been missing for a year. They thought he had been killed and eaten by an animal. But you've got these cases all throughout history. If you really want to get back, 
a thousand years ago, fifteen hundred years ago, there were abductions too, but they didn't say they were alien abductions. Back then, the creatures were called fairies. I've seen wood carvings of these fairies, and they look exactly like a gray alien looks today. They were said to come after you in what was called a will-o'-wisp, which was a light ship. They would abduct mainly females to their um, their realm, the fairy realm, which was called Neverland, I believe at the time was what they referred to it as. But then they would be taken inside of sexual experiments oh, would be done. You're breaking up a little bit. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Um, they would have the same type of sexual experiments done on them that the abductees claim today. And they would have hybrid children with the fairies. And when they would be released from this mountain and taken back to their homes, sometimes a year or more had passed. But it's remarkably like the alien abduction scenario today, which I've talked to many other researchers about this, and most of them agree with me. Whatever was abducting people back then is the same thing that's abducting them now. But back then, they didn't have the frame of reference of Star Wars and Star Trek and Close Encounters and E.T. So they weren't saying they were being abducted by aliens. They didn't know what aliens were. They thought they were fairies. So I think it's all the same thing, and it's been happening throughout recorded human history. I think it's the same thing, too. And then people have, uh, like during an abduction experience, I was just uh, reading about uh, an article from Tokyo that this man was uh, paralyzed. He heard a buzzing and ringing in his ears. He felt like there was a weight on his chest, and he was struggling to breathe. And then he said that he had terrifying episodes, even though he was a scientist. He said he was transported upward and looking down at his body. And as we call, said it before, it was like sleep, as we call it sleep paralysis. But a, a number of scholars are beginning to believe that sleep paralysis may explain some ancient attacks that they used to call witches and stuff like that. But I'm thinking that it could even be abductions. But uh, it's it's a it's kind of a dilemma, but it's not so. Let's say if you talk to Robert Salas, and Robert Salas was seen by his wife being taken out of his house and abducted. You know right. how do they explain when a mate? Okay, let's say okay, everybody has sleep paralysis because I had it and my husband had it. My husband would just be dead asleep like he's dead. He literally be laying on his back with his hands on his chest. Me look like he's dead. And I would get so mad because I would think they're taking me away. Why aren't you doing anything? Why? You know, I would be yelling in my brain, stop them, you know, stop them, you know. And uh, he would just lay there. But I think that uh, some mates have seen their mates get floated out or abducted, and they fight. And uh, how do you explain the witnesses? That's, that's what I'm getting to is that there's so many witnesses of this. How can you tell everybody, millions and millions of people, they're all lying? Well, exactly, but you see that paradigm in everything. Science, yes. in my opinion, has become like a religion. If the facts mm. of a story do not fit their paradigm, then the experts will tell you it has to be fake, the person is lying, because it doesn't fit what they've been taught and what they know. It's just like with history. One of the other things I really study is you know, pre-Columbian North American history. 
there were many, many cultures here before Columbus came to America. But there was a lady down in Mexico who was on a dig. She was um, fully granted by the university in, in, I think it was Mexico City. And she came across ruins that were at least 80,000 years old. And when she presented her findings, they said, well, you have to be faking it. That can't be correct. And she said, no, here's the film of when it actually came out of the ground. And they said, well, you know that's not possible, so we're taking away all your grant money. That's the way science works. That's the way historians work. There have been at least a dozen locations across North America where they have found Roman coins and swords and things of that nature – Yet the um, historians will tell you, well, no, that can't be possible because until Columbus, people couldn't travel on trans-ocean voyages. They weren't smart enough to. What they don't realize is there have been civilizations and cultures that have been very, very advanced in the past, and they have met their end, and then we have to build back up to them. And that leads more to what our other book is, The Flaming Dragon, because it has to do with natural catastrophes. There's a lot of evidence that especially over the last 13,000 years, the Earth has been hit about every 500 to 1,000 years by pieces of comets or asteroids that has changed the climate so much that it has killed off most of the population and then it would have to rebuild time and time again. But a lot of the mainstream historians and scientists do not want to believe it, even though the evidence is overwhelming in its favor, because that's not what they were taught in school. And they're not about to admit they were wrong about everything. That's why I say it's almost like a religion. Yeah, you're right about that, because right now, you know, we are baking our brains out in California, the hottest and weirdest days on record. I don't, I felt like, is this Arizona? Are we having 80? five degrees in the middle of the night. This is not what we're used to here, and nobody was prepared for this. For the first time, I have air conditioning in my house, and I told my friends four months before this happened, I said, you better go get air conditioning. It's going to be a hot summer. They didn't believe me. So I was the first one. I got it four months ago. And I'm trying to tell everybody, you know, things are getting hotter and hotter. And we still haven't had that much rain here in L.A. I don't know if you guys did where you are, but there's no rain down here. It's yeah, getting no. worse. <laughs> yeah, but here's the Not interesting there. thing about that. You know, right now we're being told you have to conserve water because this is a drought, and they're really, really pushing that. And, of course, part of oh, the yeah. side side effects of that is just yesterday um, the city of Los Angeles announced, their water department did, since people have been conserving water, we're going to raise the rate so we make the same amount of water. So okay. keep saving water, and we're going to keep raising rates. Well, all that's really interesting, but when I was reading and doing research for the Flaming Dragon, I found out that in the last 6,000 years, the last 150 for Southern California have been the wettest on record. And wow. we've, we have actually been lucky to really build up you know, on Los Angeles and all the, the, the big metropolitan area here grew during the time of the wettest period. And the way we know that's true is um, being tree ring. And they've been able to find trees in California that are up to 6,000 years old. So they will go back and they'll take trees from different locations. They'll compare the rings of all the trees, and then they get a general, you know, uh, weather conditions for those areas. 
And the last 150 years have been abnormally wet here. This is a desert. And when you live in a desert, you can't say you're having a drought because a desert, by definition, is an area that doesn't get much rainfall. So really, it's just this area going back to normal. But according to what they're saying now, we're going to have this big El Nino in the next two to three years could be really, really wet, especially with that huge hurricane. I'm sure your listeners have been following oh, yeah. on the weather that's hitting down in uh, Mexico right now. It's just made landfall, and actually, um, you know, we'll send positive thoughts to your relatives in Texas because it's going to go up yeah. right through Texas tomorrow. Well, um um, have you, Pete, have you ever seen those numbers in your life? It was doing something to my brain to watch 250 miles an hour. It, it tweaked my brain. It really did. I was like, watch now. I said, I've never seen that number in my life. No, that's that's a huge number. Yeah, Barbara and I have been through many hurricanes, but we've never been through anything that's even close to what that is. Yeah, my my mother has never even conceived of such a thing, and she's, you know, almost 86 years old. So that's horrifying. Wow. It's horrifying. Yeah. Well, let's keep our prayers for uh, Mexico and Texas because this is like a big monster coming their way. And I don't know what's going to hold up under, you know, 250 miles an hour winds and rain. Like, oh, my God. Well, now it's dropped now. Um, Earlier today it was at 205, and they said right before I came on here that as it's making mm-hmm. landfall and it's a mountainous area of Mexico, it's now dropped down to 160. But that's still oh good, that's that's still horrible. At well, okay. So you mentioned let's go back to the grays. You mentioned the grays, and I'm not so sure about the grays or if I ever seen a gray. But when I was a kid, I saw them as metallic gray resembling a bullet with big black eyes and a very slit for a lip and no lips, just a slit for a mouth. And I'm always wondering, is that the grays they're talking about? To me, they look metallic like a color of a silver gray bullet. But I've well, never been able to say a gray because I don't know what everybody's talking about when they mention grays. Well, the grays just refers to the race salient. They actually are described with different skin colors, ranging from brownish to bluish to almost like like what you were talking about, uh, almost a silver gray. There seems to be different ones. Um, different people have different opinions about what they are. Some people believe that they're kind of like the worker bees or the drones almost. Um, I have basically heard, though, you've got the short grays, which is the ones most mm-hmm. people see, and they can be like three to four feet tall. Then you have the taller grays who seem to be in command of them sometimes that can be six to seven feet tall. But the short ones basically uh, normally do not have a uniform or anything like that. They have very leatherly, leather-type skin. Mm-hmm. And some people believe, and some of the abductees have told me, that they actually take their nourishment, not through their mouth like we would, but by rubbing this gel-like stuff on their skin, and they take their nutrients like that. But a lot of people theorize that this is like the worker bee race. It's the one that comes out and does the abductions, but they're not the ones calling the shots. You've got either the taller grays with them most of the time, or you have, in some cases, the manises. 
and that's the insect like it that looks a little bit like a praying mantis. Yeah, that's scary to me because I saw some pictures uh, of a friend of ours, and it looked like praying mantis to me, and that's very frightening. Even though they're interesting creatures, but can you imagine a very large one? You know, I think I was oh, yeah. like in a regression with Yvonne one time, but we, but I know I can't get hypnotized, so mostly I was like relaxed, and I, I talked to her about it, and she says, "Why are you so scared of them?" I said, "This is before the the commercial came on, where that big bug stands at your door and knocks on the door." I said, <laughs> "Yvonne, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a talking to a five, four or five foot tall ant. It's it's horrifying. It's like a nightmare." And that was before the commercial came out. And she said, oh, goodness. I went, yeah. I said, to me, they look like hummingbirds, which would explain, I guess, what I was thinking. I was seeing like a, I thought it was green feathers and big black eyes to me. And so, and a long beak, which turns out to be a long wand that they used to shoot in my head, you know. Uh And they did this to my husband, too, and they would paralyze him. And I actually felt the pressure, and so did my best friend and her husband. So we are all getting a duck together, really, but she won't come out of the closet. You might have seen her around, but she's not talking mm-hmm. about it yet. But anyway, because she works for Northrop. Oh. And she's now so trained, and she has that arch negative thing. I never knew that until, like, last Halloween we were talking about it with uh, Jacqueline. And because uh, she's RH negative too, and then my friend said I'm RH negative. I said, you never told me that, but I don't know what mine is. I don't know how you find out what it is. Like when did it, I don't know? They never told me the doctors. Yeah, you can get it typed when you go to a doctor or a nurse, but it's it's really unusual about it. I didn't know that much about it either. My father actually had AB negative blood. <laughs> which is the rarest blood type. And there were times if someone in the area where we lived in North Carolina had an accident, I remember riding to a hospital one night with him in the middle of the night, and he had to donate blood because if he didn't, the person would have probably died because the people who have AB-negative blood can only take AB-negative blood. So I kind of started wondering about it, and I found out I was A-negative. And then it just so happens Barbara is O negative, and all our boys wow. are you know A negatives. But I didn't think of it with UFOs or anything like that until I was at the Ciro support group meetings. Right. And um, Yvonne would ask sometimes, um, how many people have negative blood type? And you'd have like fifteen or twenty people there, and you yeah, would almost see like everybody. Everybody raised their hand, <laughs> and I went, whoa. You know, it is. It's weird. We have weird numbers. Because uh, we all sell their age ranges. When Cyril first started, almost all of us were born in 1952, including Yvonne and me and a bunch of other people. Uh I mean, a lot of people. Okay, there was a room. There's about 20 of us, but maybe not 20, 15 to 20. You know, the usual size. Nine of us were born in 1952. I think that's kind of peculiar. That is different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was born very... in July 1952, which is a very famous week mm-hmm. for alien sighting or ship sightings. But, uh, yeah. So it's very, uh, like, this topic is, is very emotional for me because it's almost like you have to live in two worlds just to function in society. 
you have this world, which to me is a more creative world where you get to be yourself and you have all these experiences. And then there's a workaday world where you really can't bring up, oh, I get abducted by aliens regularly. It doesn't go well with the feds, that's for sure. That's true. That is very true. <laughs> and that is something that I've talked to Yvonne about, and she is very passionate about civil rights for abductees. Exactly. Because there can so be anything in the world this. wrong with you today, and you can't be fired over it or discriminated against. But yet even people working in the ufology field, if they hear about an abduction, they'll laugh about it. That yeah. was one of the reasons that I left MUFON. I basically was given all the alien abduction cases at the time in Southern California because no one else wanted to deal with it. And MUFON didn't want to deal with it. They say they do now, and they do a little more investigating with it. But it was something they're like, uh, okay, just go refer those to Yvonne or to Barbara Lamb. You know, just get them out of our hair. We don't want to deal with it. But I found them fascinating. And I found the people were not crazy. You see, that's the thing. The people aren't crazy. Back to my friends, you know, that I uh, back in high school, mm-hmm. and I would trust this person with my life, and I know this person would never lie to me. And the people I've seen out here, there's been doctors, lawyers, actors, you know, housewives, you name it. Now, you Astronaut. will run across people who are crazy sometimes, but you do that yes. more on your normal job and your normal life than you do with abductees. Look at the post office. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> it's true. That is true. But, okay, let's go back and talk about Barbara Lamb, because I, I know that you guys uh, are uh, know her. And why don't we, we let people know about her and how she talks about um, uh, hybrids and things like that. Well, this leads me to a really interesting story with Barbara, and I'll say um, – we both love her a lot. She's she's a very sweet lady, and we're sending prayers and positive thoughts to her because not long ago she was in she had her own health issues. So we we wish her well. But she was speaking to Mufon LA, not the event that I put on, but an earlier one. And I was there in the audience, and Barbara here was there, and my wife Barbara was with me, and there was a producer from a. TV show that I was working on as kind of a consultant at the time. And, you know, Barbara Lamb started her speech and was talking, and she was telling about the reason that the aliens would abduct someone is for the hybrid program. And she started showing different pictures, excuse me, and was just talking about all the hybrids. And suddenly, you know, this it was about 20 minutes into the speaking, this really pretty blonde girl who was maybe about 19 or 20 years old came in and there was only one spot left to sit and it was on the you know back then they were meeting in a church so basically she got in went and sat down beside us she passed me I was on the outside then there was the producer then my wife Barbara and she was sitting there so you know I just thought okay that's interesting someone got here late and I was still Mm -hmm. watching Barbara Lamb speak and I just would, every once in a while, look over at my wife just to see what she thought of something that was up on the screen. And I noticed this girl was leaning over, staring at me. And, you know, at first I thought, that's a little strange. And then I looked at her and I thought, my God, she's got, like, perfect skin. You know, she's got a beautiful face. Her eyes look weird. They were a little bit almond-shaped. And mm-hmm. I was like, have I seen this girl on television? 
is she a movie star? I mean, who is she? Because, you know, at our meetings, we would have different celebrities show up. And I kept thinking, who is this? Who is this? And for the next hour, you know, Barbara Lamb kept showing different things and talking about the hybrid program. This girl never looked at Barbara Lamb the entire time. Every time I looked over at her, she was staring at me, looking past my wife, past the producer that was with us. And she was just staring at me and smiling. And I finally, it was getting kind of freaky enough, I thought to myself, I'm going to ask this girl who she is at the end of this. And as soon as I had the thought that I was going to ask her who she was, she smiled real big, she got up, she walked past me and left. So she paid $15 to hear Barbara Lamb speak, never listened to her, never looked up there and stared at me the whole time. Well, afterwards, I went to Barbara Lamb and told her about it. And she said, Pete, you're not the first person to tell me something like this. She said, you've got a future in this field, and that was a hybrid trying to let you know they exist. And I was like, you really think so? He said, I'm pretty sure of it. And we asked her if they knew who she was, and they didn't, but she was the talk of all the people there. They were like, did you see that hybrid that walked in? Did you see that girl? She had to be a hybrid. And the strange thing is we've looked for her, and that happened about four years ago now. At every other meeting, we've never seen her. But that was my one personal strange experience. But I can tell you, as soon as I had the thought in my head, I'm going to ask you who you are, she left. So I don't know. Be the judge yourself of that. But Barbara Lamb, certain of it. It kind of gave me the chills of recognition because there's times now – Back in the day when I was dating, you know, and I, I talk of me and my best friend talk it up to tequila, but I was <laughs> dating and once in a while some really weird stuff happened to us. All the time it happened all the time, but on the other hand we felt that we had guardian angels watching over us. So you know, so we were going to this disco scene and did all that and uh once in a while I would meet somebody and while I was talking to him, we'd be talking and his face would change, and it would freak me out. I'd think, okay, this is a tequila going, and um, uh, I would get really worried. And it happened once in a while, and then I was then I when of course when I got into uh, Ciro and all that. When I finally made it to Ciro, I've made it to Ciro because Dr. John Mack. Somehow I heard about him. I was really having PTSD. I had a serious problem. I wrote to Boston. And where he was, and he said he I, he believed me, and he said I would take you in, in a minute, but you're so far away. Why don't you go? To, then he introduced me to Yvonne, so that's how I got to Ciro. And uh, God God bless that guy because he's not with us anymore either. Like a lot of the greats are are leaving. That's another mystery that's going on as we speak. A lot of people are disappearing. I don't know what you guys make of that, you know. But uh, I used to see these uh, face changing things. You know, and uh, then we find out that there's people among us that are actually hybrids. It had a it had a ring of truth to me. That's why it gives me the chills. Like, I think I was seeing something, but I actually had a block on all of this. I didn't know what I was seeing, or I wasn't being aware. I had these weird dreams, but I would say it was dreams. I had a lot of sleep paralysis, but I would think I used to call them like Frankenstein dreams because you can't move and you're fighting. Right, and that goes goes back in history also. In the 17th century, the most common paranormal experience was called the old hag syndrome. 
And it's yeah. very similar to an abduction that you would have. The person would be totally paralyzed, and a member of the opposite sex, they would wake up, and a member of the opposite sex would be on top of them, and they would feel this crushing weight on their chest. Well, this beautiful woman, say if you were a man, would suddenly turn into this ugly old hag or and there's been pictures that people drew of them that look suspiciously like gray aliens. But this was something that was really big during that time. And now that's what the scientists are going back and saying, well, everyone's having that experience. And you cannot say everyone's having that exact experience. No. You know, I'm sure there are people that have had the sleep paralysis and imagined something. But yes. I've had people come up to me at like the MUFON meetings I would put on. I had this lady walk up to me, lift her shirt, and say, look at this. What do you think of this? And there were claw marks all up her stomach. And I was like, I don't know. You know, I don't know what could have caused that. What do you know about it? She said, I woke up this morning, and I was in pain after I had one of these. I had dreamed that something happened to me, and I looked. I said, you yourself? And she said, no, look, I don't have any fingernails. You know, she didn't have long fingernails. So I, I don't know, but there's something happening. Scientists can't just dismiss this and say everyone's crazy when you got people that have claw marks up them. You've got people yeah. that have the implants taken out of them. And where are you getting meteor rock? You're not going and stepping on it somewhere. It, you know, And sometimes it's around the face or the eye or behind the ear. There's no way you got it embedded yeah. in there. There's just too exactly. much evidence there. Now, but, you now know, when you were... Uh, go ahead. No, that's it. Go ahead. Okay. When you were bringing up uh, sleep paralysis and we were talking about that, I found uh, – okay, I'm, I'm related to Herman Melville, okay? And he wrote Moby Dick. And he oh, okay. talks about – I know, it's just a weird – this is a weird thing I'm about to tell you. So mm-hmm. I'm doing the research about sleep paralysis and all these things that we suppose it to be and everything anyway. So Herman Melville is writing about – uh, Ishmael having sleep paralysis in Moby Dick, and then they're doing a study on it. How in ancient, you know, times literature that this sleep paralysis has shown up, but they said that there's a familiar link, familiar, whatever, familiar link through the family line. Excuse me, and uh, I thought it was so odd because I've always known I was related to him, but I didn't know that. I think he was writing about himself, and he put that in Ishmael about this weird sleep paralysis and that it runs along family lines. And everything that we go through, I think, is, like, historical with us. I don't think it started with us at all. No, this this didn't start with us. That much I, I will state my reputation on is it's not a modern phenomenon. It goes back throughout human history. It's just think of how interconnected we are now. Yes. Back, even, look, yesterday was Back to the Future Day. Even know, back in, ni- yeah, in 1989, we weren't nearly as connected as we are now. I mean, everyone's got the smartphones. You're taking selfies, sending them everywhere. You can't do anything in privacy anymore. The government's completely monitoring everything on the phones, on the Internet, and they've admitted it. We live in an age now where if something strange happens, it's going to go all out all over the world. Uh, the big paranormal news right now and UFO sightings right now is sort of this interdimensional city that popped up over China and hundreds of people saw it. And then a couple of days later, another city popped up in the sky over um, 
I believe it was southern England. So we live in a time where we're so interconnected because of the Internet and smartphones and everything that the word just gets out there. Before, if something happened, say, 100 years ago or 50 years ago, it wasn't widely known. I mean, think of the UFO sighting I told you that happened back around LaGrange, North Carolina, back in 1991, which that area also became famous, and I think it's related to this. Did you know that a nuclear bomb, two nuclear bombs, actually, were accidentally dropped on Wayne County, North Carolina, very near where this UFO sighting happened? The first bomb, as this B-52 was breaking up and the pilots ejected, the first bomb fell out. There are six safety checks on it. Five of the six safety checks failed. Basically, a 50-cent switch not tripping because the bomb caught in a tree instead of hitting the ground was the only thing that kept a nuclear bomb that was stronger than every other bomb, including the two that hit Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, put together would have gone off in 1961 in rural North Carolina. I wouldn't be here talking to you. Barbara wouldn't be here talking to you. Oh, God. The other bomb, get this, the other bomb did impact, but its safety measures worked on it. It hit in a swamp, and it went something like 100 feet under the ground. It is still there. The government said they couldn't safely get it out. That bomb is still in a swamp near or between LaGrange, North Carolina, and Goldsboro, North Carolina, and they go out there once a year to test to see if they see any abnormal radioactivity levels. But I can tell you this, and I've had friends ask me and tell me, you know, since they know I'm trying to do things in the film industry, they want to do a documentary because we have one of the highest cancer rates in the United States in that area. And they're wondering, is their radioactive contamination in the water tables there? And I think those two events happened very close together, and I believe that the UFO activity was related to that B-52 crashing and those two bombs falling there. But that's just my theory well, on it. I, I agree with it because uh, the why I haven't been showing up to a lot of events and stuff is that I've been sick, and uh, I have a rare uh, parathyroid disease. And I looked it up, and they said one of the causal factors could be excess radiation. And oh. it's so weird. Since I moved four years ago, I didn't bring my uh, microwave with me, and I haven't had a microwave. As a matter of fact, I'm using my, my stove, Hazel, who's old Keith and Merritt, old stove from the 50s, since for the last four years. I don't use a microwave. And I didn't know if I subconsciously was thinking about that, but... That's what, uh, so they have to do surgery to get rid of it, but uh, it's due to excess radiation. So I blame it on the aliens. I didn't tell the doctor that, but I said, I think this is alien dander. They've got us near radiation and stuff like that, but um, it's a, if, if you get it fixed, it's a total recovery. So thank God for that. You, know, you don't, don't really generally have to take medicine or anything because medicine won't cure it, so I can't, I have to have it out, but that's in the works right now. If you're wondering well, why I have all our Thank listeners you. here and, and Barbara and I and definitely everyone in Ciro send you positive thoughts and prayers for that. Thank you. Thank you. It's, that's what's helping because I'll keep hanging in there. I don't give up no matter what. But I did. I found that story about that cloud in the sky. And this is a brand new story 
October 22nd, it says mysterious sky city photographed over China. They have a a picture of it. So in the independent news reported extraordinary cloud formations that appeared to be a city floating over the side. They're calling it a cloud city with uh, mountains or buildings or whatever. And uh, uh, Robert Schaefer, a longtime skeptical UFO researcher, told Discovery News that in 2011, the reports of a floating city was also seen back then in China. And uh, it's just the... Okay, the angry rolling clouds that they're talking about, another optical illusion, is it's the first new type in 60 years. Like, there's also these weird, strange cloud formations that are showing up. And a couple of them I've never seen before. I don't know if you guys noticed that there's, like, different formations in the sky than usual. Well, we have noticed this, too. We follow this whole chemtrail debate and issue yes. because where Barbara and I grew up, we're used to military jets, we're used to commercial jets, and we know what a comm trail is. And I've talked to pilots. When I was investigating UFO sightings, many times I had pilots would have a sighting while they were up there. And I would ask them always about the chemtrails and the comm trails. And it's fairly common knowledge among pilots that those are not comm trails we're seeing. They are something would, you know, that the government is spraying out there. And we have seen more and more of those. You'll have certain days out here where there are none. Barbara and I were outside one day, though, and we saw a lot of the chemtrails up there. And I saw this one plane going along, and there was nothing coming out of it. But it was, you could see, it was a dark plane. And it was releasing something, but it was clear because the chemtrails all over were dissipating and disappearing within seconds of it going there. I don't know what that was, but to me, that definitely proves something was going on. Mm, there's something very peculiar happening. Uh, I don't I don't like it. It's new, but maybe it's preparing us something that's going to be really different. Do you ever think the UFOs and the aliens are going to present themselves in the open? Well, I think that they have presented themselves. And I think they have presented themselves to a certain group of people, and those are the ones, a lot of them, who would consider themselves experiencers or abductees or the contactees. And I believe that disclosure is going to come from this group of people. I don't believe it's going to come from a government source. I don't believe the aliens would land on the White House lawn, as they say, because they would immediately be attacked and killed. And then we'd be all told it was a big hoax. I think disclosure has to come from the people it's happening to, and we have to have sort of a civil rights movement for these people who have experienced this and who have been abducted, that they won't be treated like outcasts and like they're crazy, and that it should have serious scientific study done on it. Exactly. Why just the total rejection? It's kind of getting to be... uh, you know, grade school stuff when you're still rejecting what we know, what we know now about space. Uh, before it was sort of like Star Trek. We had like a little few stars up there. Now we know there's galaxies and universes and all this stuff. And you still say we're it. It's just well, it's too phenomenal to even think about. Well, I mean, we now have water on Mars and Pluto. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
Pluto and, that doesn't exist. I know. The funny thing about the water on Mars is a friend of mine that's still in MUFON sent a link up to me that showed a 1976 NASA release that had big headlines, frozen water found on Mars in polar regions. And one of the probes had sent that back. And then a few years later, NASA came back and said, no, 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 we were wrong. It couldn't possibly be water. Yet how did it take them since 76, so what that be, 35 years, to suddenly say, oh, yeah, there's water on Mars. And now you've got this star they've suddenly released information on that the Kepler um, telescope saw that has something blocking the light from it, and there's a lot of people theorizing it's a Dyson sphere. So you're slowly having information leaked out by NASA, but you're not getting the full truth. You're not getting everything they know. I, I, I feel like uh, when I first realized uh, it was sort of a profound realization, when I realized our scientists are keeping so much from us, you know, and they're keeping us in the dark intentionally, I thought I thought we were actually paying for them to do uh, to look for our discoveries, to do things like that. And then they're hiding the evidence from us. You know, how dare they? Don't they have a a legal and moral right to, to let us know about information? And some people say they already have a cure for cancer. Why aren't they using it? And stuff like that. I actually was quite offended that we're not being told. Uh, like, of all the pictures that uh, the Hubble has shown, how incredible, they really hide a lot of the pictures from us. They're saying they have pictures of weird, strange huge ships out there or whatever they are and uh, they're not showing us those pictures well it kind of goes down to the government controls the money that goes out in grants if you're a scientist the only way you make a living is to get grant money if your discovery goes against the paradigm then you are ostracized you're basically kicked out of the scientific community and you no longer get grant money so you're you're totally out of a source of living then. So that's why you're not seeing a lot of discoveries that go against the current paradigms in whatever the field is, because the scientists have to live too, and you know maybe they're selling their souls to do it sometimes, but they're keeping that grant money. And you also have the other possible option as well is that if there are higher you know if the beings come if, you know, in disclosure is, um, takes place, you also have the technology that would come with them. And with that technology, you're looking at other means of transportation, other other ways of doing things, and that would um, go in counter to uh, the way the economy is working currently. And it may put it in jeopardy. You're so right. Yeah, you're so, so right, but the, the, what I, why I brought that up is because I think these changes are getting us ready for the more, because we're observing what we see as uh, maybe something unnatural, uh, making changes on the natural world, but what we may be seeing is what the natural world will be looking like. We're going to get used to this kind of weird uh, phenomena because it's making us, it's it's weird to us right now. Like, let's say that huge uh, hurricane uh, in Mexico, in Texas, you know, 250 miles an hour. It, I'm telling you, it really did something to my brain. My brain had to adjust to that number. It wasn't really a normal thing for me to look at. I, I really felt it. 
you know, it was like traumatic. Like seeing that big snowstorm last night, last, uh, there was like a tornado that hit Massachusetts. Like what? Don't you remember that from last year? Yeah. <laughs> well, and there were I earthquakes. I was born in Boston. I never heard of a tornado in Massachusetts. Uh, there were yeah. earthquakes in North Carolina and Ohio and places where there's not normally earthquakes. There's a lot of natural phenomenon going going on really? right now. One of the things that a lot of the experiencers tell me, either the ones that have been abducted or ones that are contactees, and it's a universal message almost, the aliens are telling them, your science has come far in the last hundred years, but you've lost your spirituality. And they're not talking about religions. They're talking about believing there's something other than science. Because I don't necessarily... Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with any particular religion, but I believe there is a spiritual being. You know, I believe there is a creator out there. I don't think everything just happened by accident. But, you know, people say it's either creation or evolution. There's nothing in between. What about if they're both wrong? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. You're right, because I feel like it's both. I think we have a creator, but there's natural evolution, of course, because things can... uh, change in just a couple of generations of birds. They've seen that in the scientific studies. They quickly right. uh they quickly change. Change it you know more rapid than anybody's expecting. But within a, a generation or two of bird they'll do different behavior or they'll change their bodies. Like it doesn't take that long as people think. So, you know, I really do love science and I, I really do like uh sci- science fiction too. And uh Meaning the science fiction that's turning into reality is uh, some of it's very exquisite. So, uh, do you have any news on the Southern California coast, the uh, whole um, undersea USO activity? What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, that goes back. I talked to Preston Dennett a lot about that. Um, he broke a lot of the news on that supposed base that they've got this Google Earth um, picture, which kind of shows this underwater structure uh, off of Malibu out that way. I believe there's something there because I know a lot of the cases I did actually uh, came from the coastal areas, and there's a lot of people who have told me they've seen objects go straight into the water. They've seen objects coming out of the water. There is one on there, but there's also a spot that's like that off of Puerto Rico, and it's a thousand times more active than the one here, and it's been known about for 30 years. So I do believe if there are UFO bases on Earth, the most natural place for them would be in deep water, underwater, because we know less about our oceans than we know about the moon. So I believe it's entirely possible. I also believe it's possible it's military action out there. It could be either one. We could have the capability of doing it. We've had uh, amphibious planes before. Maybe there is something going on uh, even more. Uh, you know, the experiments and all. And we, it's really weird how much we don't know about the ocean and how we're discovering new things every day. I know a lot of things are disappearing, but a lot of things are appearing. Are you, do you remember the Humboldt uh, octopus they discovered they said somebody said there's this blue octopus with a big red eye out there in Humboldt County up northern California. And it oh. sounds like something out of sci fi, right? 
So I was yeah. watching this when they rode down the submersible uh, little uh, ship, and they went down with a camera, and one went by. And you could mm-hmm. see it's blue with a bright red glowing eye. And you would never, ever think that was down there, but then now they found a lot of them down there. Yeah, those Humboldt squids. Uh, it's interesting you brought that one up because uh, one of our yeah. sons really enjoyed uh, doing reports and things on those in school. So he, he was fascinated by those as well. <laughs> right, and they yeah, just I am got too. somewhere out in the Pacific, they just discovered, um, I saw it and I saw the video on it, a completely fluorescent turtle, sea turtle. And it just I glows saw that. in the dark. So it's very neat. That kind of goes back to one of the things I do in the alien abduction investigations that Dr. Lear actually told me to look for. And with cattle mutilations, they discovered the cows were marked with this fluorescent dye that you could only see with ultraviolet A or ultraviolet B light, which you would find like on a mineral light if you were searching for different minerals in a cave. And I have discovered that a lot of people who believe they have been abducted have these fluorescent dyes on them. I've seen it on the hands a lot, which that to me is not as impressive because you touch anything that could get chemicals on your hands. But I've also seen it across their chest. Um, I've seen it on different areas of their backs. I've seen it in private areas. And there's no way that these, under this light, this very bright green or bright yellow or orange dyes would be on these people normally. They had no idea how it got on them, and it would a lot of times just freak them out seeing these dyes on them. I don't know. I guess you talking about the glowing octopus made me think of that. But, yeah. That's you know, that's, hmm. that was, that's kind of an interesting thesis right there because maybe they possess that luminosity. Yeah, well. Or something, I, and then when they touch us. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. What I do with the people um, after I have an investigation, I recommend to them to get their own little mineral light because you can get one for about $20 off of um, Amazon. And this one little story was really interesting. This lady was having a dream, and she thought it was a dream, but that was the way her experiences went. And she was on board this ship. And she was given a baby to hold, which this is a common thing among the, among abductees, especially females, as they're brought on to hold the hybrids. Well, this particular baby looked like a snake, and the lady was not happy. And she said, I'm not going to hold that thing. It's going to bite me. And they made her hold it anyway, and sure enough, it looked at her thumb, and it bit down on it. didn't really hurt her, but it scared her, and she screamed. And after a while, she woke up and she remembered it, and she went and looked immediately for her mineral light that she had. And her and her husband looked at her, and sure enough, right on her thumb where she was bitten, it glowed. I think it was a bright yellow color. So there is something with those dyes, and that's something I can't explain. But it's funny that the mineral lights will show you that. And again, for any listeners that think that you're being abducted, I would definitely look for it. And it's got ultra ultraviolet A and ultraviolet B lights on it. It's definitely a way to to see if something unusual is going on. Yeah, and uh, and plus, as Ivanovi says, record all of this. If you record 
uh, and get one of those mineral lights and get uh, a journal and write down your experiences because a lot of us forget our experiences. We'll have them and remember them from that second, and then all of a sudden they're gone. Because uh, do you feel that there's uh, not only a block but an intentional uh, way the aliens are blocking memories and abductees? Yes, definitely. That's a common theme that goes throughout what I consider the real abductions because you'll have what they call a screen memory. And the screen memory isn't just for the person being abducted. Often if you interview the people in homes around the person that believes they were abducted, they'll know something happened at that house that night. In one case that I had, the next-door neighbors stopped the person the next morning and said, why did you have a helicopter over your house last night? Why were there fire trucks in your driveway? Are you okay? And the guy goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, that person had had an abduction experience, and he remembered it. But he said, you know, if you saw a fire truck, why didn't you come over and see if we were okay? And the guy said, I don't know. That's a good question. But in more than one case, the neighbors think they're seeing a normal thing. So somehow during this abduction experience, they're also getting screen memories. Now, you'll also see a recurring theme is like abductees are obsessive about certain animals, such as owls especially. They'll think there's an owl looking in the window at them. Sometimes the aliens, I believe, use the owls or different animals as a screen memory to cover up themselves. So instead of seeing like a gray alien, you remember seeing an owl that night, and you think, oh, that's kind of cool. I saw an owl looking in my window, and you don't think any more about it. But then you look in that person's house, and they've got 20 figurines of owls. They've got, <laughs> you know, of them everywhere. So it it is screen memories, I believe, and definitely something that you hear at the Ciro meetings um, because I thought that UFO I saw might have been a Harrier jet until my friend said, well, where was the noise? And when I related that yeah. to someone at one meetings, he goes, wait a minute, I've been seeing this Harrier jet just hanging off the freeway where it's not supposed to all the time. He said, you know what, that's not a Harrier jet either. So yes, I think definitely that you're having screen memories is what they call them. And that's something that a good hypnotherapist like Yvonne Smith can help you break through. There was a case of a, a lady who had, as a child, she thought a guardian angel had saved her life because it had snowed, and she went outside when she was about four or five years old, or was it six years old, and she went out in the snow before her family got up, and it was real foggy, and she went out in the field, and she laid down, and she went to sleep. And then she heard a voice saying, you need to wake up, and you need to go in and get warm. And she looked, and like a 20-foot area around her, had been the snow had been melted, and it wasn't cold there. But as she was recalling this in the regression, she started having a severe pain um, in one of her ears. I believe it was her left ear. And she kept getting this thought, I can't tell this. I'm not supposed to say this. And instead of it being guardian angels, she recalled there was a light above her, most likely a ship above her. And that's what woke her up. So her whole life she had thought guardian angels had woke her up when really she was having an abduction experience. So definitely you have screen memories. Well, I know that's true because I saw a, a owl sitting outside my window on the fence next door, 
looking in my window, and I was looking at it and thinking, are there owls in Hermosa Beach? I don't think so. <laughs> so I don't have any owls because I don't I, – that's one little figure I do not – I'm not into it. It just bothers me. I don't mind uh, – I was driving up north. I was like uh, – I was on an off street, so I decided to go down. I ended up in Cambria for the first time, but I went down to these woods, and a big, huge owl – his wingspan was bigger than the car, swooped in and didn't hit me, but it swooped in and covered my windshield and then flew straight up. And uh, after that, I saw an owl sitting on my fence at home, and I was always wondered, you know, that's a very odd way for an owl to act. And uh, it was huge, but it was white. But the one sitting on my fence was a regular little gray owl, you know, but um, I'm a little afraid to have that fi- that figure around because of those I don't know. They don't have big black eyes, though. You know, they they're don't. not scary to look at. They're cute, but I don't. I can't have a picture of them. Or, or I love hummingbirds a lot. I cannot have a picture or a figurine of a hummingbird around in my house. Well, you're actually not the first person to tell me that hummingbirds are another really? screen memory that a lot of abductees have had, and they've told me about. So I've actually heard that more than once, also. Wow, I have never heard anybody tell me that. I'm glad you're giving us this information because this is what we need to do is keep information going back and forth so we don't feel like we're the only oddball. Well, exactly, and that's really the most important part of my investigations isn't what I'm going to find out. It's that I actually listen to the uh, abductees or the experiencers, as some like to be called, and I don't judge them. It's like... The person in Finland who just recently contacted me, she was just glad to tell me about it. Then there was a lady, um, I believe she lives in, like, Texas now, and she was actually from North Carolina when she had an abduction experience, and she told me her whole experience of how she ended up on a friend's deck, uh, uh, you know, at the beach on their sun deck, after she had been taken out of her house, and there was no way to get to it other than going through the house because of how high up it was. But she didn't even want to tell her husband because she thought he would think she was crazy. And these people just don't have an outlet. And I'm wondering, you know, how many people go their entire lives without saying something. I've actually had a guy who was in his 60s sent me a letter that his mom had left. 50 years earlier, talking about when she was really young and went out on a date, and her and her boyfriend saw this UFO, and she was abducted. And he sent it to me just so there would be some record of it somewhere. And I just think there are thousands and thousands of people who have had these experiences, but because of the way society looks at them, and even their own spouse maybe and their own family, they're afraid to say anything. And I just wonder how prevalent this whole experience is. If we're only seeing, you know, the the well, many millions of people have said they've seen something or experienced something, imagine there has to be five times that not saying a thing. Well, yeah, you know, at least that. Yeah, at least because uh, it's very odd to try to hold your all your worlds together. You know, it wasn't until... Uh, for me, until three years ago, then suddenly I'm doing a radio show. I don't even know how that happened, really. I I never aspired to do this. I never did any of that. But just one uh, one thing happened after another. 
And uh, that was when I decided to come out. That's when I started doing the radio show and things. And I didn't know that that was going to be my spot in order to do something. You know what I mean? I didn't know it. I really didn't. So people were thinking I had it under my hat. I went, no, I don't know how this all started, but it's uh, opened another world for me and given everybody a forum just to talk about whatever they want to talk about. You know, and that's a blessing. Yeah, we're very fortunate that that you are doing this, and I know there's a lot of people out there that appreciate it, you know, and and, um, they're allowed to, you know, listen to the stories and that you've given them this avenue. So we thank you. Thank you so much for saying that because, you know, you have to to do any of this. You've got to really stick your neck out, you know, and meaning just be your true self and tell the truth. And sometimes that involves losing friends or, in my case, I didn't really lose friends. More more would be family was really upset with me. But uh, you gain so much. So I want to encourage everybody, you know, the gains and the losses, you're going to gain more than you're going to lose. You know, and I think that just be yourself, get help. You know, you can contact Yvonne Smith. Uh, do you guys have a website or anything where people can contact you or – uh, do you want to go uh, through Ciro International? Or how do you want to do it? Um, they can contact me through Facebook under Pete Elmore. I get a lot of contacts on there. Uh, they can also, um, I would always recommend Yvonne because she's a professional at this. I just investigate that she's actually the professional hypnotherapist and she's the best in the business. So she's telling me anytime that someone wants it to go ahead and give her email address out and she would be glad to talk to them. But um, you can easily get a hold of me on Facebook. That's probably the best best way to do it. Okay, and then he'll give you her email address, too. Because I can never remember her email address. I just remember the zero uh, address. But, uh, okay, so we only have, like, 20 minutes left. Uh, do you want to talk about your book, The Flaming Dragon, and how this whole thing came about? Because I know you're co-authors for this book, and it sounds very interesting, and I can't hardly wait to get it, really. So can you tell us about it? Sure. Um, I actually wrote this as a novel, but it's got a lot of what I believe are true historical events, and it's something that's very important that people understand. The Dark Ages were the period of time through about the 6th century to the 12th century. It was right after the Roman Empire started falling apart, but Around the year 535, I think that some people before me found the cause of it, and then my research confirmed theirs. In the year 535 A.D., the same meteor shower that we saw last night, part of Halley's Comet, the last two nights, you could see the little meteor showers from it. Mm -hmm. Well, during that time, you got more than just the little particles from it. Some big chunks had broken off from Halley's Comet. And two of these pieces of it, which were very large, exploded over southern England and northern Ireland. There are historical accounts that say at the time the entire island of Britain was on fire from one end to the other, and these are all in Welsh. The Welsh were really the true people of Britain. That was before the Saxons came in there. They were the true British. Well, what happened during that time it also happened to have a king named Arthwin. Arthwin was the king of Wales. He was also known as King Arthur II. 
the two there were two King Arthurs in real life that the mythical King Arthur was based on. So I wanted to get out in the novel way about the comet exploding causing the dark ages. What happened when this comet exploded, the pieces of it, was that there was so much debris in the atmosphere that it blocked out sunlight for nine to ten years. Basically, if any of your listeners watched the Game of Thrones and Winter is Coming, well, that's basically where that idea came from. There was a winter that lasted nine years, and it didn't just last over England and over Europe. Worldwide, there were over a dozen different cultures that talked about sickness. They talked about very hazy atmospheres. They talked about the sun would give forth no heat. The Chinese said the sun was blue. The Chinese actually had the best definitive historical records during the time. They said there was no heat. There was no summer. There were no days sometimes. If the sun did show itself, it was a pale blue color. Well, now the interesting part about this is it happens every 500 to 1,000 years that pieces of these comets have been hitting Earth. But with this book, what I did, I took the King Arthur legend, and during that time um, he had a cousin named Prince Maddock, and Alan Wilson did a lot of this research and has a lot of the proof from the old Welsh records that Prince Maddock had been to North America. And he actually went there to get copper for their kingdom because in North America, after the Ice Age ended 12,800 years ago, there were large copper boulders laying there. And there are historical markers from different societies and from extrapolating from the mines there that show that probably over 100 million tons of copper was taken from the Great Lakes region and went somewhere. Well, when you look at the Bronze Age in Europe and the weapons and the shields and everything, and you actually analyze the copper in it, it's of such a high purity, it had to come from the North American deposits that we still have today because the purity of copper everywhere else, Europe, Asia, all those areas, was not nearly that pure. So we know there was contact between England, Europe, and North America. So what I did, I had Prince Matic, which Alan Wilson had said, had a flotilla of boats that basically took all the survivors they could get together. They went back across the Atlantic to North America, and they landed and they lived among the Indians, or the Native Americans, as it's called today. And the thing Barbara and I always heard when we were growing up in North Carolina was about the blue-eyed Welsh-speaking Indians, because the early came here were very amazed when they would have what they considered to be these primitives. They weren't, of course, because the Native Americans had great societies by then, speaking Welsh and having a religious system that resembled Christianity. So I incorporated that legend into Prince Matic. King Arthur evacuating England and made it into a King Arthur legend, came over to North America, and of course when they got here, I incorporated another Native American legend, which was the red-haired giants, which there were literally hundreds of giant skeletons 
that were found in North America, especially in Ohio, West Virginia, uh, the Ohio Valley area. And they were in mounds, and these were the mound-dwelling Indians, they would say. There were these giant skeletons, and when we would dig them up in the 1700s and 1800s, if they were in good enough condition, you know, they were shipped off to places like the Smithsonian, like in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And and the Smithsonian now says that they can't find them, that they don't know what happened to them. If they weren't in that good a condition, they actually just went to dust because they were so old. But every single Native American tribe had this legend of red-haired giants that they finally overcame in one great battle where all the other tribes got together and they they killed these evil giants. So when I've got King Arthur coming over here to North America, we're incorporating that legend, and of course they're fighting the giants here with the Native Americans, and we also bring the Thunderbirds into it, which basically a Thunderbird was a Native American dragon. And there's been a lot of interest so far in this book, and we're hoping to get it made soon into a TV series. It's had a studio, and it's in development right now. And Wonderful. Good news about that. Oh, yeah. It just sounds uh, just so exciting, and uh, I wish you all the best for that or break a leg or, or whatever the good luck part of it because – it's uh to me there's there's enough truth there to make it interesting because this is based on the truth of what happened and uh i didn't know about the the cold age and all that i've known about they called the ice age and everything but when you're describing how uh it really it was over uh england it's really awesome really cuz you say the saxons walked into like abandoned country because it was frozen out and there was no barely any opposition, and right. uh, that's how the Saxons ended up there. Yeah. Exactly, and the other part that Barbara and I really wanted to get out here was the notion that every 500 to 1,000 years, we have been hit with debris from comets or asteroids, mainly it's comets. But what ended the Ice Age over North America, I know you're out here in Los Angeles, I'm sure at some time you've been mm-hmm. to the La Brea Tar Pits, Right. Out there, where they've got you know the mammoths and the like, the dire wolves and and all the creatures. Well, what killed them twelve thousand eight hundred years ago was a swarm of meteors or a swarm of debris from a comet that created what was called the Carolina Bays, and it hit with such force. It hit with actually trillions upon trillions of not only large items but little pieces of these meteors and comets that were made of iron that it killed almost every mammal in North America larger than a mouse. It was completely wiped out, and we were frozen at that time, and ice was all the way down to, like, the Kentucky area. And the heat from the impact and basically melted the ice, and it changed the climate to where we went into another warm period because of the way it knocked the Earth on its axis. So you have this debris from comets that is hitting never so often. And the scary part about it is the research that I've done, and anyone can do this yourself, you know, just using Google and, you know, look up comet impacts. A lot of very reputable scientists have found that every 500 to 1,000 years, you have these major impacts that will kill 70 to 90% of the population. And that it does this by not only the direct impact, but by changing the climate, 
where no crops will grow for up to 10 years. There's no sunlight. Sometimes it even causes a lot of volcanic reactions. Sometimes you have the volcanoes like Krakatoa going off because of these comets hitting. And the thing is, we had one hit, you know, 13,000 years ago, and then these swarms, the Earth goes through this area of space every 500 to 1,000 years. Well, you had the one hit in 535. The next piece of it that they can definitely catalog that hit was in 1447. You started entering that region of space around 1900 again. In 1908, you had the Tunguski um, impact over the Soviet Union, over Russia. If that had been over a populated area, literally millions could have died from it. And now, for the next 100 to 200 years, you're in that bullseye again. That doesn't mean we're about to get hit by a comet, but it means we're in the area of space where there's more debris that can hit the Earth than at any other time during the orbit. So we're in a big danger zone for the next 300 years. So that's the, well, really what we get out there. Well, it's a you know it's weird that uh, you know that you have this this uh, these books coming out and this information on this when we're just talking about this huge hurricane that showed up down south that is so shocking in the shocking proportions. This is how it happened, you know, is that Mother Nature or something called come down that's bigger than than the world can tolerate, and it does wipe us out. That's why we have to. Uh, just know if it happens. Uh, well, for me, I hope it hits me first because I don't want to watch everybody suffer misery. That's the way I feel. Yeah. You know, because this is this is some giant stuff that we have little control over. So exactly. I don't want everybody to be afraid of it. Where are you going to go? You know, just uh, that's why we have to work uh, to me on our spirituality and uh, get more information so we don't have to suffer the fear factor for everything all the time. You know, so. Uh, Anyway, be strong, people that are listening. That's all. Even no matter what's going on, it doesn't matter. It doesn't because there's personal catastrophes too. We've got to be strong through that. And then there is worldwide catastrophes happening, like right now. I'm sure people, some people in Mexico think it's the end of the world right now. Right. You know, I feel sure. I feel really bad, you know, because I'm sure some people don't even know what's coming down or or whatever. But anyway, you've got three amazing books. Reflection. That actually are all uh, from this this month. All be, have been released. So uh, in September, so reflections for an alien abduction investigator, and that's uh, by you, Pete, and with Yvonne Smith. And then eleven easy ways to determine if you live in a haunted house. We didn't even get to that. Uh, <laughs> we still have uh, like a couple of minutes. So let me just go through your books. And uh, also, the, there's kin, there's a Kindle version for all this. And then. The book he's just talking about now that's going into production is The Flaming Dragon, King Arthur, Merlin, Prince Maddox, The Romans, and The Comet Explosion Caused the Evacuation. And that's by Pete Elmer and Barbara Elmore. And they're all available on Amazon. They just look just fascinating and a good read, and so everybody get them. And they're also available on Kindle. But tell us the 11 easy ways to determine if you live in a haunted house. Well, it's really, if you've ever, yeah, if you've ever seen Ghost Hunters, it's, it's yeah. basically um, a, a little how-to. Yeah. How I give out different ways that paranormal investigators will go to your house. Like, you know, say, if you hear weird things around your house and you don't know if it's haunted and but you really want to know, I give experiments you can do. One of them is uh, using digital recorders and to do uh, EVP, electronic voice phenomenon. 
which I'm sure most of the listeners of this program would be familiar with. Um, I also suggest taking a lot of pictures because the ghosts tend to turn up in pictures. Um, Also, there's a way to train your dog, if you have a dog, to actually detect ghosts. So I go over that in the book. Um, You know, but most people, if they live in a haunted house, they know it's haunted. This is kind of a book put out. People would think it was interesting for Halloween coming up and everything. But if your wife sees ghosts all the time, okay, you live in a haunted house. (laughs) You know, you see the ghost, it's there. Um, One way to really find out, get a very cheap security camera system, hook it up to your computer, and you'll see if weird things show up on it. I don't have to have any doubts. Anywhere I go is haunted because I think they follow people. I don't think they um, necessarily – some are attached to areas, but – you know, when you're married into it like I am, you're going to have ghosts mm-hmm. anywhere. I've gotten up. I've never seen ghosts, but I have seen a rocking chair just sitting there rocking back and forth just as hard as it can, and I'm the only one that's up, and I hadn't been near it. Barbara and I were laying on a bed one time, and we felt something real heavy fall between us. And I felt it, and she felt it, and we both jumped up like, what the heck was that? So basically, any of you listeners out there, if your spouse says there's ghosts, just accept it. They're there. <laughs> if you're both wondering or you just live by yourself, then you can look in this little book, and it's it's a really cheap little e-book um, you can get, and it, it can give you ideas. But, you know, it's basically if you like ghost hunters, it's a lot like that, and I just tell how to do the little experiments to see if they're there. Yeah, it's a uh-huh. fun read. That's, that's cute. And uh, also, uh, just go ahead and go over there, and I, I really want to thank you folks for being on. You're an amazing couple, and I love you guys very much, and I miss you very much, too. And uh, I will be around as soon as I feel better, but I am more than likely will be at the meeting on Sunday. And uh, But what happens is that I get tired. I just went to a ride to Beverly Hills to see the doctor, and it was very hard getting back. So it's 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 just I have a weird thing going on right now, but it's not forever and it's curable. So I will be around. So I'm glad you guys didn't forget about me. That's oh, not, a, not at all. And we'll okay. bring you um we'll bring you some books you can give away to your listeners too when we see Yay. you. Yay! Oh, awesome. Okay, motivation. That's what I need. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I want to thank you so much and say hi to the boys for me. Because your kids are growing up, they they had just had a graduation. I saw their pictures, and it's just um, just a just amazing family that I look up to you guys. And uh, you know, you're really like a safe spot in friendships, and uh, just makes me feel real good to know you. Well, well you too. We really appreciate you as well, and and we thank you for having this show and having us on it. All right, thank you so much, and you've been awesome. A couple to have on here, and we all admire you. And please come back anytime. And uh, really, God bless all your endeavors. You're doing an awesome job. And thank you so much. All right. Thank you, too, Charlene. You have a, a all right, good take evening. Take care. You, too. Okay. Good night, you guys. Bye bye. Good night. Good night. So, it's been an amazing night. It was a lot of information that we have to process. And uh, what an amazing couple. And they're just such good parents, and their the kids are doing so good. You know, they're an example to us all. Just stick it out there and uh, just find somebody that you have mutual interest with so there isn't so many conflicts amongst your family. But anyway, you know, for the Halloween show, which will be our third anniversary for the Paranormal is Sacred, 
is next week. So next Friday, Edwin Becker, author of The True Haunting, one and two, and a bunch of other books, is going to be my guest, and we are going to be giving away some free books for you guys. So anyway, I haven't thought of what to do or if you guys can answer quizzes or whatever to torture you with to get the books, but you're going to get them anyway. So God bless you, and thanks for tuning in. And same time, same station next week, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, The Paranormal and the Sacred. Thank you so much. God bless. May your best dreams come true and true love live in your heart. And we're a place where the unheard may be heard. God bless y'all. Bye-bye.